0: hello this is Duran Orenstein from best saxophone website ever.com bringing you what i hope to be the best saxophone podcast ever here's where i meet with super brilliant folks from the saxophone world who will be sharing their insights tips tricks and whatnot with you to inspire you to improve your craft and have a great time doing it all right everybody. Well today we have something really special. We got Adam Nywood who's based in Manhattan. He's a highly renowned jazz saxophonist, multi readist electronic wind instrument player and composer who also happens to play drums professionally. And he hails from an incredibly musical family with his father being the late great saxophonist, woodwind doubler and composer, Jerry Nywood, and his mother, Gurley a classical clarinetist and pianist. And Adams carried on the family legacy with his own amazing career performing and recording with folks like Bill Sharlap, Jim McNeely, Rufus Reed, Warren Vache, Vic Juris, Steve Gilmore, Gene Ocini, and Gene Bert... I don't know, I'm probably pronouncing a bunch of, <laughs> a bunch of these names wrong, but... Okay, and, Gene Jean Gene Bertonsini, okay. There you go. Sorry, Gene. But um, his most recent recording is going to focus on unrecorded music composed in the last 10 years by Adam's father, Jerry. And it's going to feature Adam playing alongside John Scofield, John Patitucci, and Jack DeJohnette. And on top of all of that amazing stuff, Adam's an extremely renowned saxophone mouthpiece refacer. And we'll get a little bit more into what that is uh, later on. But he's worked on mouthpieces from saxophone greats like Michael Brecker, Dave Liebman, Chris Potter, Mike Turner, and many, many more. So without any further intro ado, uh, welcome, Adam.
1: <laughs> Hello,
0: everyone. Hello, Yes, yes. So um, really stoked to have you here. And just the first thing I was curious was um, about how you got started playing sax, because I know it's, it's pretty interesting with uh, such a musical family like yours. Um, well, I guess the, the
1: first saxophone that I played was a soprano saxophone um, as a youngster. Um, you know, my dad played all of them in the house, but uh, I guess that was the first one that I tried out. And it, it wasn't like any kind of serious formal study. It was really just like, you know, the bell of the instrument was resting on the floor, and I was blowing into the mouthpiece and putting different keys down and just kind of, you know exploring and playing with the, with the instrument not uh not like I say like any kind of formal study and that that was probably maybe 2 or 3 years old you know and then uh I'd, I'd bang on pots and pans and um march around the dining room table with a penny whistle and um, you know it, it was just uh there, there didn't seem to be any like real pressure. You know, I, I would play the piano as long as I didn't bang on the piano or use like toys or a, you know you could only touch the keyboard with your fingers was the rule. But um, if I wanted to you know climb up on this piano bench and play for a little while, um, you know it was always encouraged that that was okay. And you know, but there, there was kind of a right from the get-go. There was a they, they taught respect for the instrument in that. Um, you know, I wasn't just going to like drop the soprano, you know, or... you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, they, There was supervision if I was playing, you know, with a nice instrument, and... Uh, but it... I don't know, it was like a toy, you know? I got the sense that it was, you know, you, you respect the instrument, but it, it was fun. So from my very first memory of of playing any instrument was that it was, it was fun, and that the reaction from my parents was one of, of joy, and that they they had fun and there there was laughter involved, and you know, it was, um, yeah, you know, that's music was just like a joyous uh, occasion in the household, you know. That sounds, that sounds really
0: cool, very cool. So, I mean, you basically did you always know that you wanted to be a full time professional musician, or did you ever have any doubts about that?
1: Um, uh, wow, I mean, I guess. It's funny, like doubts, like, uh, I think everybody has doubts when they're contemplating what they want to do as, as a career or as, as a life choice, you know, it's like, what am I going to do with my life? You know, everybody, why? Well, you know, hey, I only know my own experience. I, I don't know what other people do, but I can imagine that other people out there also kind of question what they're doing. But, um, the path, or at least the path that I've taken has been quite natural, uh, after high school, you know, like sitting, I'm sure, you know, you remember sitting with the guidance counselor and they're asking you what you're interested in, you know, and, um, I didn't apply to any other schools other than uh, music schools as far as applying to college, you know, post high school. I I applied to Berkeley College of Music and I applied to William Patterson and uh, maybe Jersey City State. Actually, in fact, I can't can't remember, but I, I think it was maybe three, possibly maybe four schools and that was it. And they were all music programs, you know, on saxophone. Um, that's kind of jumping to the end of high school, but uh, I guess if, you know, like the the first instrument that I that I studied formally was clarinet, and I played that uh, in third grade, and then I didn't really enjoy the clarinet, so we switched to alto saxophone, and then I played alto saxophone up until my freshman year of high school, and then the band director needed to. Uh, to balance out the section. Rather than having three tenor saxophonists and five altos, he asked me if I would switch to tenor. So that that was, you know, for no other reason just to have, you know, even numbers of, you know, four on one instrument and four on the other, I switched from alto to tenor uh, as a freshman in high school. But that really seemed to be when I started to enjoy the saxophone more. You know, I always liked playing, but the sound of the tenor was really what kind of got me um and inspired me to when i got home from school i'd want to take the instrument out and do all the things that that i get in trouble for doing during rehearsal like noodling or trying to figure out a a melody by ear or something like that you know so you know the stuff uh, where uh high school band director would be like "Adam knock it off" you know i'd go home directly from the you know the the band uh, period and and take out the tenor and start to practice at home you know so i guess the tenor was really that that was what got, you know excited me about music you know it just seemed to really I read it resonated with me you know tenor saxophone so it sounds like the
0: tenor was like a real turning point in your musical development that's what got you really excited
2: yeah I mean
1: just the the sound
0: of it and the, it, it seemed to
1: vibrate so much more the instrument had like this resonance in it that the uh, the alto uh, didn't have or that I, I didn't quite experience or whatever or maybe it was just I don't know maybe it, just the bare bones that i liked the sound of the tenor and it got me excited about playing it and that i wanted to you know rather than a thing of like my mom saying hey you have to go practice uh that stuff for band you know it would be like hey adam you have to eat dinner can you please stop (laughs)
0: that's that's cool so you were in a pretty um intense practice schedule already in high school
1: um i wouldn't say intense i mean i was into other things but i uh I definitely would would uh, play for for fun, for something to pass the time. For it was you know rather than like turn on the Nintendo and and play video games after school, I I would actually go up to the third floor practice room in the house and I would you know I would just alternate. I would play drums for fifteen twenty minutes and then you know pick up the tenor and play that and you know uh, but not really like you know breaking you know breaking is not the right word, I wasn't like uh, pressuring myself, it was just a way to pass the time, you know, enjoyably, you know?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it sounds like you were, you know, pretty darn serious, because in high school, I understand that you went on the road playing with your dad and some other great musicians in a big band, and can you talk a little bit about what it was like to go on a tour like that, being so young and relatively inexperienced? Um,
1: well... I think uh, any time I went somewhere with my father in a, in a professional situation I was um, just kinda quiet and would, would you know observe and check things out you know so um, I guess uh, you know dad was on the road and uh, there was something coming up where there was a string of dates where they needed somebody and uh, Mr. Mangione Asked uh, my father if I'd be interested in coming out and playing the second uh, tenor part. You know, there weren't there weren't like uh, solos or improvisation things to do. It was you know inside uh, uh, you know second tenor or fourth saxophone in the, in the arrangement. You know, like uh, you know next to the baritone, and they felt that it would be a good experience for me. And you know, quite frankly, I don't I don't really think that I was uh, that I was ready. You know, I mean there were a lot. There were a lot of other musicians who had paid dues and uh, and deserved that gig. It was really just a thing of like uh, it was an opportunity that came up. Uh, Nepotism, if you want to call it nepotism, it was quite frankly that. And uh, um, but for me, that was really like I mean I was up on stage with Steve Gad, and he was completely playing so much drums and you know uh Lou Soloff playing the lead trumpet part you know like sitting right behind your head i mean it's hearing these guys play with such conviction and uh it, it just it was very easy to to play my part uh and to and to blend in a section where where everybody is a professional so that that experience um, was really inspiring for a 16 year old you know i was 16 years old at the time i had braces on my teeth um you know, I was a high school kid. I liked riding my bike and, you know, jumping, you know, my mountain bike off of stuff. Uh, I was a kid, you know, and uh, it was really kind of like the sobering slap in the face. Like, wow, you know, this is, this is what dad does for a living. Like, you know, he goes to work, and this is, you know, this is what it is. And I could actually do this too, you know. Um, and it's fun, and I really enjoy it. And you know, that as a as a junior in high school. Uh, it really kind of solidified for me uh, what I wanted to do after high school and that was to study music and I realized that I wasn't like ready to be in that particular experience but that I would really enjoy uh, being ready in the future for similar experiences and that's kind of what sparked my interest to go to school and to study and to get more serious and you know to really start to practice and not just to play for fun but to actually uh, devote myself to mastering an instrument like the people that I was uh, sitting next to at that time. You know?
0: Yeah. And you know, uh, speaking of playing in big bands and ensembles, I know one of the big requirements for sax players is obviously to double, is to play at least flute and clarinet and sometimes other woodwinds. And I was wondering, is, that, is doubling on the other woodwinds a part of your creative journey? Or if there was no such thing as the music business and you could make a living without playing those, would you just as well skip over the uh, woodwind doubles? Well,
1: that's kind of an interesting question. I think if, if you would ask me that question, fifteen, you know, twelve, fifteen years ago, um, I would have told you that all I wanted to play was tenor saxophone and a little soprano saxophone, and you know, I was very into late fifties call Train and. Uh, Uh, the period of Wayne Shorter when he was playing with Miles Davis Quintet, you know, uh, when it was Miles and Wayne and Herbie and Ron and Tony Williams. I was very much into that and only that, and uh, I wanted to be like the the late 50s up into the 70s, like, you know, uh, post-bop tenor saxophone player. Um, And I had no desire to play the flute or the clarinet at all. And kind of rebelled against it, uh, you know. You know, people my my father's age, my you know my father's contemporaries would look at me like, you know, you dumbass, what's the matter with you? Everybody plays the flute and the clarinet if they play saxophone, um, and I just kind of rebelled against it and didn't want to do it. And at the time, I really felt that the saxophone was hard enough, and that I really wasn't anywhere near close to where I wanted to be on a technical level with the instrument. Um, so I wanted to just devote all my time and energy to to saxophone and then uh, fast forward to now and, and you know I, I practice the drums more or or equally to to what I do uh, the, the saxophone or the e and I, I break out the the bass clarinet and you know the other day I had the flute out uh, and was practicing the flute and I just kind of uh, enjoy hearing all the various sounds but um so on the flip side of that, I mean I am I interested in, in being a professional Woodwind doubler and, you know, walking into any situation and and playing the flute, uh, playing the clarinet, you know, just playing parts and stuff like that. And um, I guess that I really have a high level of respect for, for people like Lou Tobacan, who is a virtuoso flute player, in addition to playing the saxophone. So, um, or or guys like Charles Pillow who play the double reeds he plays the English horn and the oboe and the flute and the clarinet and you know my father played the uh, flute and the clarinet and the saxophone he, he didn't play double reeds but he played them all with a a personal voice on the instrument and he really uh, took the time and, and studied the flute and um I didn't want to just simply play the instruments on a uh, on a sub standard or or even like a uh, okay level just to be able to squeak out a part uh, to make money. That didn't seem (laughs) when I was young. It just didn't seem like something I was like you know in my heart of hearts. It wasn't something that I was sincerely wanting to do. Yet there are other people who were younger than me. Like for instance, uh, Sam Sadigursky. He had the passion to even when he was a young student at William Patterson he was really learning to play all the instruments on a high level because he wanted to, to be able to, to break into the in addition to being a, a gifted you know really inspired you know improviser and a jazz player he he did want to break into the the same kind of work that my dad was doing which was uh, you know sitting in orchestra's pits and uh, playing you know the the woodwind doubler in New York you know so if I guess I, I just felt like at the time like if in New York, you feel like an ant in an ant hill and, and mm-hmm. you know there's so many people and they're all doing the same thing you're doing and I figured if I wasn't sincerely in love with the flute and the clarinet, then why get in the way and get in line you know in the hierarchy of, of guys who are actually sincerely wanting to do that
0: so your professional career right now does it um include any woodwind doubling or are you pretty much doing it without the um, woodwind doubling be a part of how you earn your living?
1: Well that's interesting. How do I earn my living? Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean I would say that, that I do a lot of different things there's a lot of different uh, cogs in, in the machine that is uh, my, my financial productivity you know? um, I, I do play gigs. When I play gigs nowadays, I play uh, improvised jazz gigs. Where you know, I play a lot with the drummer Bill Goodwin. Oh, my computer just went to sleep. Can you still hear me? Yeah. Okay. I just jiggled the mouse. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, I play with Bill Goodwin. I play uh, tenor saxophone. Sometimes I play EWI. You know, the Akai electric wind instrument. Uh, with that group as well, um, and. You know as a working uh musician I mean I find that I go out and i I get hired now as a thirty three year old uh what people are looking for when they call me is 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 me they they want uh Adam you know not not just a, a body in a tuxedo uh holding a, a saxophone they're actually looking for for what I specifically do and that that was kind of the goal i guess as a, as a youngster was to try to uh work on on creating something different where I didn't sound uh, exactly like uh, I don't know, I, I didn't want to 100% mimic uh, someone else or, or just uh, disappear into the sea of, uh, of, of tenor players, you know what I mean? I wanted to do something a little different, I guess. And uh, hmm. So, I don't know, I, I, I'm an improvising jazz tenor player when I go out to play tenor um, I also in the last couple of years have started playing drums, which is kind of a humbling experience because I realized that, you know, that it, it's a whole other instrument, uh, and, and there's so many people here in town who are virtuosos on that instrument, and, uh, you know, it brings me a lot of joy to, to play the drums, but I'm also playing gigs uh, with a, a trio with some of my friends, uh, Jesse Lewis on guitar and Chris Higgins on bass. Um, so, you know, when we do play, which is you know maybe i don 't know maybe once a month or so we 'll play somewhere locally you know in one of the jazz clubs you know in Brooklyn, or uh, sometimes we 'll take a trip you know outside of the city to go play in Jersey or in Massachusetts or Connecticut or you know what have you um, you know and we play original music on you know in that group as well, so I guess but i you know I look at that as an artful when I go out to play i 'm not uh as concerned with how much the gig pays at this point as what the music situation is going to be and are we going to be allowed to play the way that we want to play and you know is it uh, background music as opposed to an actual performance where people are coming to to listen to the performance and the, the, the latter is what I'm I'm trying to focus on doing is playing in clubs uh, for an audience where people are there to hear the band and, and you know not really like a background music situation are talking over and ignoring the, the instruments, that's, you know, that's not really what I'm focusing on trying to do right now.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. Um,
1: so that's not the most lucrative um... career choice to run, you know? Yeah. Um, a lot of times playing the type of music that I want to play and in the type of situation that, you know, that I'm getting myself into in New York or going uh, around, it's, it's not always the most lucrative, you know, the, at least at this stage of the game, because I, I feel like I'm still uh, working on my on my thing. You know, I'm still working on. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't. You know, there, there's uh, you know Joe lovano and and uh, you know Chris Potter. These these guys are. You know, they're. I feel like they're they're a lot further on their their journey. I, I still feel like I'm a grasshopper. You know, <laughs> so. <laughs> You know, I mean it's uh and that's an interesting thing, you know, like a lot of people my age who are they've graduated high school at the same time as me, you know, they're they're as a thirty three year old they're they're uh solidified uh, in their career choice and you know what I mean? They're they're well on the path already and I, I still kinda feel like I'm at the entry level position in the corporation.
2: <laughs>
1: but you know, but I'm ready to work hard, baby. That's you know, I, I like to work, so but uh, you know, no. so what do I? You know, you mentioned the craftsman thing, the mouthpiece replacing thing. So uh, yeah, basically, uh, I mean, how do I make money? Like uh, that was a question. So starting when I was in high school, you know, at the, at the, the age where I could get working papers, I, uh, I was, I've always been really into bicycles. You mm-hmm. know, riding bicycles and you know, and mountain biking and road cycling and taking long trips and. You know, launching your mountain bike off of you know things and stuff like that. So bikes break, and uh, as a high school kid, I I got a job working as a bicycle mechanic. You know, uh, not that I knew what I was doing, but you know, you you get a job changing flats in the bike shop, and then you know, as you go as you're working, you you pick up uh, the trade and, and how to fix certain things. So you know, 15 years uh, later, I mean, I haven't done it since uh, 2005, but. Uh, for 15 years, I was a bicycle mechanic, you know, fixing bicycles, and that brought me a lot of uh, enjoyment. In that, uh, here's a puzzle; somebody brings you something that won't operate, and uh, you fix it for them. So the positive—it seemed all positive, you know—and it still is. It's it's all positive. It's a very, you know, easy thing where art is. Uh, it's subjective. You can have like a room of thirty people listening to a concert, and each person's perception of how the music went, or how the performance went, or did they like it or not, it changes. Uh, you're going to get different answers. Some people enjoy a concert; some people don't. You know what I mean? It's it's just a very uh, it's a very different way to make a living. Whereas a craftsman, somebody gives you something it's broken, you fix it, you hand it back; it's no longer broken. It's 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 a very you know different thing to do, and I found that element of it really refreshing, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, for a lot of years, especially after I got married, uh, I worked as a bicycle mechanic during the day. The hours were good. The shop didn't open till 11 o'clock, you know, like, <laughs> I could hang out really late and come home and get some sleep and, roll in and get to work by 11 o'clock, and then I could still take a gig at night. There was something where I had to drive like considerable distance. Uh, the, the hours were flexible. The guy at the shop liked the fact that I was a musician and an artist. And, uh, you know, it was a good thing. And, you know, I did that for a while. And after uh, a while, I started to uh, kind of get curious about the, the saxophone mouthpiece. You know, I had a couple friends. One was John Ben-Whee. And uh, the other is, is uh, Ted Klum. And they're, they're both friends of mine. Uh, John is no longer with us, uh, rest in peace. But Ted, uh, these are guys who were musicians, but they got into, as craftsmen, You know the same kind of thing. You, you have something that's broken and you try to fix it. So Ted Klum uh, taught John Benwee uh, how to reface and modify saxophone mouthpieces to a very high level. I had uh, John Benwee do some work on one of my mouthpieces and then I started sending him all the mouthpieces that I owned after that to have him work on them because it just the work that he did was really uh, efficient and it worked well and I found it easier to play. It's kind of for people who don't know what mouthpiece refacing is it's like uh, when a guitar player or an electric bass player takes their bass or guitar in to have it set up professionally where they they make sure that the neck is straight And that the action is even, and um, it's it's regulating and and fine-tuning what's already there. It's not changing, but so refacing is kind of trying to remove the the flaws in the part of the mouthpiece that the reed uh, clamps against to give it the the most free and easy response, or to change the response if somebody wants more. back pressure if they want a little more resistance or pressure or if they want it to be more easy and free blowing uh, or a mouthpiece refacer can can make very subtle subtle changes to a mouthpiece to uh, to change the response for the player so having two friends who were very efficient and very good at this procedure uh, of refacing which is an art all to it's a lost art form all to itself um, i asked ted Clum to teach me about it because i was fascinated about it and buy it, and not really thinking that it was going to be a career, this was just something like uh, at the same level when when the gears weren 't shifting on my bike, and I asked you know the the head mechanic you know as a high school kid, hey why isn't this working right and then they showed me what was wrong with the mechanism. I was fascinated with how Ted could take something that didn 't play, and to my eye you know. He was doing things, but it was all very subtle, subtle changes with sandpaper and, uh, you know, like a jeweler file. And then they'd hand back the mouthpiece, and it would play so much differently. That, that procedure fascinated me. Mm-hmm. So I asked him, and, you know, it took a while. He, he said no at first, and then he, he gave in, eventually, uh, to take me on as an apprentice. And I was working at the bicycle shop. Uh, in, in Tenafly, New Jersey, called Tenafly Bicycle Workshop. I was working there uh, as a mechanic, you know, eleven o'clock to to six or seven, and then I would head over to uh, to Ted's house and do uh, apprentice work for him. I did that for a, lo- a long time, and eventually he said, "Listen, you know, your your work is on a higher level," and he kind of set me free to uh, to do this work. So. What it is I have a website I don't really advertise I don't put advertisements in papers I don't go to jam sessions and and tell guys like hey I can reface your mouthpiece for you uh, I actually try to keep it fairly quiet uh, and people find me by a word of mouth or by uh, doing like a Google search or a Yahoo search in a search engine um, they find my website and people send me emails and you know I arranged that they, they mail the mouthpieces to me uh, I refaced them and modified them for them and send them back and that procedure being a, being able to be a craftsman you know at the bike shop um, all of the tools and all that that was at the shop and I had to go and work and the hours were there and it was very much like a retail position you know turn the key in the lock turn the lights on you're responsible for the store and the cash register and all that and uh, I really enjoyed the 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 working with tools and fixing things, but um the mouthpiece we're facing allows me to work that same part of my brain where I'm I'm trying to suss out uh you know what the problem is with this mechanism and trying to fix it. Um, you know, but I can do it at home and I can do it when I choose to do it. So if, if at two thirty AM uh after getting home from a gig if I'm all amped up and I, I, you know, had coffee at the gig and I, I can't sleep. I'll sit down and before I go to bed i'll I'll work on a customer's mouthpiece for them, and that kind of flexibility with the hours to be able to do it whenever i want um, I found alleviated the problem of when I had a, a rehearsal during the daytime at the union, but I had to work my eight hour shift at the bike shop
0: so yeah. is fixing a mouthpiece a saxophone mouthpiece kind of a a binary thing where it's either Fixed, or it's broken, or is there some creativity and um, personal taste that goes into making it sound a certain way?
1: Well, all right, that, I can answer that question in two ways. Uh, yes, it is binary in that I, I do have certain people who have a favorite mouthpiece, and uh, you know, somebody doing a hula dance or a conga line thing knocked their mouthpiece off of the, the stage you know not if, if the saxophone takes a fall and the mouthpiece hits the ground and breaks which has happened in the past people will send me a mouthpiece in multiple pieces right like <laughs> <laughs> wow. yeah and then you know i'll use epoxies and and put the mouthpiece back together so you have a mouthpiece that's broken i glue it back together i epoxy it back together and then i make subtle changes with the sandpaper to try to level out uh what what is now glued back together so that's yeah, a very binary thing. You have something that's broken, that is not usable. Uh, I glue it back together and send it back to the customer and hopefully they're happy. And most times, you know what I mean? You, you can't play a mouthpiece that's broken into four chips. But <laughs> when it's glued back together, that's the next best thing. It's definitely better than having four chips. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So, that's, you know, yeah. But then there's the other side of it where somebody will take me a mouthpiece that when you look at it there's really nothing wrong with it and uh they want to change an aspect about it like they'll say oh the, the low notes don't come out as easy and uh I know what aspects of the facing curve or the baffle shape or the internal dimensions of the mouthpiece I can make changes to by removing material and that's basically all I'm allowed to do or not really allowed but that's what I have the capability to do you know I have a drill I have Sandpaper and files, and um, you know, I can remove uh amounts of material from key places to get desired results in either sound in the character of the the sound, you know, or uh in the way that it feels. I can actually change the mouthpiece and it won't really sound all that different, but it'll feel a lot different uh while playing it for the player. So that Mm -mm. that aspect of it uh, is creative in that uh, a lot of times people are picking and choosing adjectives to describe something in the sound that they want to change you know like for instance there's uh, one guy uh, Patrick Cornelius I, I he's a, a dear friend of mine from, from Manhattan School of Music but I love this I'll never forget he, he was over and he, he was you know playing two mouthpieces and he said "Yeah, see this one it's juicy and the other sure. one is not juicy you know, so I'm left you know using my creative uh, to try to interpret that statement, well, what is juicy? What does that mean? And you know that that for me, I'm trying to not always with success, I'm not going to claim that every time I make every customer a hundred percent happy, you know sometimes people are are experimenting they send me something that they don't like, so it's a given you know uh, the mouthpiece they're sending me in the mail they don't like how it plays, and then we're we're rolling the dice and taking a chance that maybe after i you know, they say, well, maybe if you if you change the tip opening and make this instead of a six, we make it a seven star. You know, maybe I'll like it. So I I change the tip opening, and and you know, then it's really a crapshoot. Are they gonna like it? Are they not gonna like it? You know, they don't always uh, they don't always like everything. Sometimes I have people who we, I got an email from a client in the Netherlands who purchased <laughs> this mouthpiece. Uh, he sent me pictures of it, and I remember the mouthpiece, but I did it for. For a guy who sold it to somebody else on eBay, and then another guy had it, so this mouthpiece has been, you know, like passed around from, you know, and sold from one person to the next to the next. And this guy in the Netherlands loves this mouthpiece. Where the the person that I initially did the the modification for, he was not happy with it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But then it's kind of like catch and release, you know, fishing or whatnot. You know, you don't like it, you you, you put it back out there, and then. Uh, however many years later this guy you know he's wanting me to make him another one just like it so it's it's kinda funny that you one man's uh... choice pick is 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 another person they don't like it at all they think it's horrible (laughs) it's it's kind of subjective in that fashion so you know the there is you know like a certain aspect of the job that can be frustrating when i'm trying to you know uh... players comments and 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 make a guess of, of what's gonna make them happy and you know sometimes I get it sometimes I don't but that's I'm okay with that and as long as the customers are alright with that uh, everybody's everybody's, you know good to go I guess you know
0: yeah Yeah. well speaking of sound and all that one thing that you're known for and that you know I've noticed in listening to your music is you don't really sound like anyone else definitely you've definitely got a unique uh, sound and style so I, I was wondering if you could share what it is about your musical journey or if there's anything you did or anything that other players can implement to help them find uh, their own unique voice. Well, um...
1: Wow, okay, that's that's, that's a big, uh, a big <laughs> one. Well, alright, I, I guess on the... Initially, you have to just pick what sounds good to you. Um, seems like a kind of like a a funny way to answer the question, but uh, for me, like there were certain players that that I just loved. Like I I would fall in love and become like uh, obsessed with their playing. You know, uh, Coltrane is one. I I really like late 50s Coltrane. Love it. You know, I like all periods of Coltrane, but for me, the late late 50s happens to be, uh, when he's playing like bop, you know, like fast really intricate, uh, all in the changes and just really, you know, if you analyze and, and pick apart what he's doing, I mean, it's so, so tightly, neatly constructed, you know? I mean, that's, but there's just one element. You know, I really got into listening to, to him and, and not trying to, to emulate, not trying to, like, uh, copy or to to emulate him 100%, but to, you know, just getting into the sound and really enjoying listening to him and uh, listening to the, to the same recording and the same solo over and over again and singing along with it. And, uh, you know, driving in the car and, and just actually singing you know, in the, who, who else is in the car? Nobody can hear you, you know? I'll drive in the car and, and sing along with the solos you know, just to try to match the phrasing and try to uh, to not uh, get in the rests, you know, to really get the entrances and exits and how long they hold note, uh, how long they how they shape the, the tone as far as the pitch, you know, uh Another uh, person, Wayne Shorter, I got really, really, really into Wayne Shorter, like that aspect of you know the period where where he had, he had just joined Miles Davis's group and you know where plug Nickel and where they're playing standards, and then watching the transition of how Wayne started bringing music to the band and they started playing his compositions and compositions by herbie and you know the the shape that that band took from playing standards to to changing the, the music with their those records you know what i'm talking about the e- miles mm-hmm. miles esp nefertiti um water babies uh you know man so i guess the first thing is just don't be allowing other people to to tell you what you like i don't know I mean, some people like i uh some of my friends i i noticed you know when we were in school they'd be like yeah you know uh so-and-so this instructor told me that I really need to check out this person you know and I've I've purchased now four records and I don't like it but I'm still listening to it because so-and-so tells me you know I you know what I mean yeah. yeah I guess I'm not saying to close off your your mind and not check out new things and you know quite honestly the first time my dad played John Coltrane for me I didn't get it at all I didn't like it you know but I was like 11 years old you know i mean it was way too much and then fast forward to like 16 years old you know just 5 years later and it's like my favorite thing you know i love it so you know you're not always going to like everything the first time you hear it and you know i'm not encouraging people to to close off their uh, you know be open minded check out lots of music but don't if if you know if you really naturally just come to liking something without anybody telling you one way or the other you just like it well well Listen to yourself and, and check it out, and try to check out everything else that that person has done as well. So, for me, you know, in the beginning, I guess you know what I was really doing was you know I mean certain Sonny Rollins records, uh, the Bridge, um, East Side Rundown, I really like that. Uh, you know the Joe Hen- the various Joe Henderson recordings that my dad had. Uh, you know, I would go up and I would pull out uh, LP, you know vinyl. And a lot of these classic records that are that are classic, you know, my dad had them. They were in his, his personal stash, and I would just go and listen to it, and I would check out all the stuff in his collection. You know, then when I got to Berkeley, you know, like I was saying, you, you hang out with friends, and they hit you to different things, you know? So every time I would get really into someone, uh, or, for instance, the, the band with John Schofield and, uh, and Joe Lovano together, they put out the record Time on My Hands with Jack DeGionette and uh, Charlie Hayden. And then they put out a bunch of records with um, either Mark Johnson or uh, Dennis Irwin on bass and Bill Stewart playing drums. I have all of those records, you know, and I kind of got obsessive about it where I liked I liked the band so much with Lovano and Schofield that I was like, well, I'm just going to buy everything that they put out and check it out. So there was a period in the in the '90s or whatever where I was driving around in the car. Uh, Have my CD player, you know, with like the tape adapter, and I was just listening to the same four records like over and over and over again to the point where I could I could sing all of the guitar, saxophone, bass solos. I knew, you know, at you know what moment Bill was going to come in with like a slick drum fill. You know, like memorizing the music. You know, Um, that's one thing that I, I guess I talk about with a lot of my friends now is that back in the day, you know, you didn't have the access to here I am, you know, thirty-three years old, talking about back in the day. Like, what do, you know, I'm not that old, <laughs> but there's no iTunes when I was a college student, man. Uh, yes. there, there wasn't iTunes. You couldn't just go to this website and type in somebody's name into a search engine, and then all of a sudden, okay, wow, now there's like eight records that I can just instantly download immediately. You had to, you know, to seek stuff out. If somebody had a, uh, you know, a videotape, you know, like a VHS cassette of of uh, Keith Jarrett, you know. Charles Lloyd or you know some video a jazz video you'd have to actually go and get another VHS player and link them together and go through like an ordeal of like borrowing this cat's tape and making a tape of a tape and you know now you just go to YouTube and check stuff out but you know I guess you know I'm not saying that that's a bad thing because I would really check out rather than having like you know how however many terabytes of music like oh yeah I have a 1.5 terabyte hard drive filled with with albums you know I would seriously just check out five records over and over and over again you know and really internalize and memorize the music and uh, so in that I guess in in really checking out the guys that I like the guys that I like on saxophone and that I've really gotten like obsessive compulsive about checking out have been uh, John Coltrane Joe Henderson Michael Brecker uh, not necessarily in order. These are not in order. I'm just I'm just saying names that I you know uh, Wayne Shorter, uh, Jan Garbarek, Jerry Braganzi, De Goats on both alto and tenor. Um, uh, who else, man? I mean, there's Mark Turner obviously. I've gotten you know I'm, I'm kind of late, man. I have to say I slept on on that whole thing, the, the Mark Turner thing for a while, and everybody was talking about him for a while, and I I didn't really check him out, and then. I started hearing things, and I was like, "Wow, this guy really—this is not just some hype or something where you know a, a label is really hyping some somebody. This is—he he actually is is doing something different, you know." So, I've gotten into Mark Turner uh, recently, within the last two years, I would say. I've gotten into checking out, and I have a lot of recordings that he's on—the ones with uh, Rosenwinkle—and and, you know, and not just saxophone players, man. I really like guitar. That maybe just because I was born in in 1977 and spent time you know on the road with my parents and a pop act that had electric guitar I don't know it resonates with me I really like
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I love you know piano too don't get me wrong I'm not saying anything bad about piano or piano trios or group you know acoustic groups with just piano and horn I'm not you know I I said earlier that I like uh, the Miles Davis Quintet but I really also enjoy the sound of, of guitar you know, guitar trio a record that I like listened to ridiculous amounts is Bright sized Life, and then his late, you know, Pat Matheny's later, you know, trio—the one with um, with uh, Roy Haynes, you know, or the the newer trio that he has with uh, Bill Stewart and Larry Grenadier, and well, actually, that's not the newer one. Now the newer one has uh, Antonio Sanchez, uh, who was a classmate <laughs> of mine kind at of, Berkeley. I remember playing with Antonio, uh, you know, not having any idea what I was doing. Hi, Antonio. <laughs> but, uh, and I haven't even checked out that trio yet, but uh, I don't know. Uh, I listen to a lot of music, you know, and that's and then when I play um, without trying to completely emulate or play like written transcriptions, I guess stuff just kind of leaks out, you know. So when I'm when I'm playing nowadays, I I actually find it really interesting that people tell me that they that they think I have a, a unique different thing because what I am doing when I'm playing, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm being totally honest is that when I hear any, any music that I'm listening and trying to act and react to, I'm, I'm it, it triggers certain things. I mean, you, you hear someone playing, you're like, oh, wow, that kind of reminds me of, 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 uh, the 1969 period of, of Miles Davis when Jack and Chick were in the band. You know what I mean. I mean these things just go on in my mind when I'm playing, listening, and reacting. And I try to choose uh, what I'm going to play to be in context to what I'm hearing. So it's like accessing. It's it's like you know your brain is a is a hard drive, and you have all these various things stored in in your in your memory. You know, and you access various things at, at the at the appropriate time. You know, so. Um, I don't know Uh, I mean I guess definitely listening and transcribing and and, and getting inside and being able to sing a solo that you really like you know well don't just like it like listen to it to the point where you really know it and can sing along with it and can can play one of the the really interesting homework assignments at at, uh, Manhattan School of Music when David Liebman was teaching the class was that he made us transcribe a solo and then we had to come in and in front of the class, we had to play our instrument along with the, the recording, you know? Mm. And then he records it. So there's going to be a recording, a document of you playing along with the, the recording. And then he plays this shit for other people, which is really, you know, and so the pressure's on, right? So, you know, I mean, one of these things I remember really getting deeply into playing along with the, uh, the, the ESP solo, the, you know, the Wayne. ESP solo and playing along with the recording and trying to match the sound and phrasing and, you know, now obviously I'm not going to go do that on a gig. You know, that would be lame. You know, (laughs) wow. He just played, you know, 48 measures of someone else's solo. I mean, nobody wants to hear that. But being able to, being able to do it and to emulate something that, that you really love, um, you can you can do like different permutations of of people's playing that you like, and and ultimately it's it's going to sound like you, you know. So I guess a completely different topic as far as like developing your own sound was that, uh, and this is jumping just specifically to saxophone.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When I was at William Patterson, I uh, wanted to get. Away from jazz saxophone lessons, and I wanted to kind of like, uh, you know, I told you that I, I was into like figuring out how to fix a mechanism, you know, like a bicycle. A bicycle is a human-powered mechanism. There's no electricity, you know. It's it's a, it's a machine that's powered by the by man, you know. Well, the saxophone, or or most musical instruments, I would say, is kind of like a bicycle, right? I mean, it's it's a it's a futuristic device, you know, depending on when it was developed. You know what I mean? That that uh, you know a saxophone, you blow into it, you you put different various keys down, and you 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 know it's a mechanism. That's the way that I look at it. So I was kind of curious about the saxophone. Um, I don't want to say as a classical because you know I I didn't want to just you know not think about jazz, but I wanted to learn the instrument from like a, a stripped down kind of like a, uh, just learn how to manipulate the mechanism efficiently and to be able to have the saxophone sound a variety of ways from bright to dark and all of the ways you know all of the various uh, different tonal uh, uh, colors that the, the saxophone could, could sound it has a very wide spectrum if you look at the various players who play the instrument yeah there's, there's a broad spectrum of of sound that can be made so, so you're just
0: giving yourself a bigger palette to work with in a tonally Exactly. So I, I took lessons uh,
1: while at Patterson with uh, this guy, Dr. David Dempsey, yeah. who was an educator. He's, he's a, a career educator. He runs the program at William Patterson, but he's also a really good flute player, and he's a really good uh, saxophone player. And, you know, he plays, if they need a saxophone player with the New Jersey Philharmonic or with the New York Philharmonic, he'll go and play the part. He's a, he went to Juilliard. He was a Juilliard uh, Student of saxophone, he studied with Joe Allard. Uh, the name Joe Allard. He was a saxophone teacher who taught Coltrane, uh, Michael Brecker. Um, the list goes. Dave Tefani. uh... I mean, there's so many people who studied with with Joe Allard. He Never played... heard of
0: those people, but I'll take your word for it. Ah! He's yeah. <laughs> here what? all week, folks. Hey, <laughs> it's a comedy show now. It's good, but.
1: Joe Allard, he was a, a bass clarinet player. He played Paganini, you know. Um, so you know he was a, he was a woodwind guru, and he had this way we, we call vocal manipulations of sound. Where if you listen to a Michael Brecker solo, a lot of times he's playing various uh, false fingerings and harmonics, right? Mm-hmm. On the <laughs> so with the saxophone, you can finger. uh... That's funny. It sound you know. You you can you can. You can play a low B flat. You can have the fingering for a low B flat. All all of the keys and pads down, the lowest note on the saxophone. And uh, the first couple times a a young student will try to play the low notes on the saxophone, what comes out is the upper partials, right? Uh If you think about it, you know you're a saxophone player, Duran. The first time you played the low B flat, did it pop out? uh, Did it pop out really? You know, like low and full? or did you get the upper partial which sounded like an octave or two above?
0: Oh yeah, I'm, I'm sure I didn't hit that note square on the first time. <laughs>
1: right? So, you know, a lot of people think, oh I played a wrong note. Well no, you didn't actually play a wrong note. Technically, you played one of the other overtones in the overtone series off of the, 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 the you know, the lowest note, the, fun, the fundamental pitch of the, of the instrument, right? Mm-hmm. So, Joe Allard, you know, the, these teachings, these exercises, he has you playing all of the various notes in the overtone series which is kinda crazy because then you start to realize that the, there's a lot more notes on the saxophone than just the ones on the fingering chart that come with the instrument, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of uh, various ways, like on a guitar you you have six different choices of where you're gonna start your line and that's why they say it's hard to, you know, to to, to read, uh, you know, to sight read on guitar because you have to choose which string you're going to start to play. You know, with saxophone, you know, the, the fingering, the written fingering system of the saxophone, there's one way, there's one specific way to finger the notes on the instrument. But with saxophone, there's there's various uh, alternate false fingerings, right? So starting to study this, this way of manipulating the instrument where, you know, you start to realize that there's so many different notes other than, you know, it, it just opened up a whole can of worms for me. Now what you're, you're also doing is that it's changing rather than just blowing directly into the saxophone. These exercises, what I've learned, you know, and I'm, I still practice this stuff daily um, as a warm-up routine, as a way to... To break in reeds when I have new reeds and they feel kind of stiff and stuffy, I'll use these exercises, these Joe Allard uh, vocal manipulations, where what's happening is that you're changing, much like a a singer, uh, when you change a note, the the inner, uh, the way that your throat is formed uh, naturally changes if you sing a low note or a high note. You know, if you, if you put your hand like on your larynx and you sing the lowest note that you can in your range, and then you sing the highest note that you can in your vocal range, you're going to feel that uh, everything from the shape of your tongue to the shape of your, your larynx to the shape of your, your whole throat changes depending on what note you're trying to sing. Well, on the saxophone, to just blow straight into the instrument without changing any of this uh, yields one sound. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you start to actually shape the inside of your, you know, what I mean, the, 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 the inside of your body is the initial chamber of the instrument. When you start thinking of it that way, that, that your body, you actually have to have the inside shape of your mouth, your throat, your tongue, how your tongue is anchored to the back teeth in your, in your embouchure. When you start to change these things, you can get a really bright sound. You can get a, a middle EQ sound. You can get a very. Mm-hmm don't have to change the mouthpiece you don't have to change the the saxophone the reed you can get like a full you know spectrum of different uh, color by how you're blowing into the instrument and how you're shaping the, the flesh part of the chamber which is you your, your body right mm-hmm. then as you start to, to to be able to manipulate the full spectrum of the sound you start to notice oh you know I kind of like that sound so you start to latch on to like the uh, the way that you make the instrument sound which is the, the most close I think to your voice mm-hmm. and I guess that would be for me I think when I started studying with Dempsey at William Patterson and started practicing these Allard exercises that's really when I started to to figure out that I could I could uh, make the saxophone sound like me you know uniquely like I guess uh, you could change it. I, you know, I I could, I could have like you know uh, a whole bunch of different personality types in in the uh, in the arsenal, if you know yeah. what I mean. So, but I guess what I'm trying to say is, in that I'm still emulating my favorite personalities, my favorite players. You know, the the things that I have stored in the memory bank. You know, I'm still trying to emulate my favorite Sonny Rollins solo or my favorite John Coltrane solo. Or my favorite Wayne Shorter solo, or Joe Henderson, or you know what I mean. I, and then somehow it still comes out as, as people hear it as, as Adam Nywood and not not these people, you know. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm being very honest that I I am emulating my favorite players and not just completely trying to to reinvent the bicycle wheel every time I play I'm not trying to reinvent music and just come at it completely from this haphazard direction it's I guess it is rooted in in my favorite
0: uh recordings and players yeah well excellent that's uh that's really cool I've never heard it uh explained quite that way so um you know Uh, maybe maybe I'll listen back to it and be like oh no Adam you're wrong (laughs) totally (laughs) I didn't want to say it but yeah no (laughs) uh, um no, that's, it's, it's actually great stuff, You're talking about expanding your palette and using that to get a, a, a more unique sound, so I actually wanted to move on to yes. talking about something that's really exciting, which is, you know, it's not every day that someone gets to record an album with John Scofield, Jack DeJohnette, and John Patitucci, and it sounds like your latest album project is, is really cool, so I was just wondering if you could talk about that a little bit and how it came together.
1: Okay. Um, well, basically, with with this project, um, I kind of feel like a sub. <laughs> you know, most musicians have had the experience where um, they get a call and they're like, "Hey, listen. You know, this is rather unfortunate, but you know, so and so was going to make the gig, and they got you know they lost their passport or." You know what I mean? There's, there's any number of things that can happen where, you know, something happens and somebody's not able to make a gig that they were supposed to make. And then, uh, you all right? Did you fall over?
0: <laughs> uh, my, my bottle of Coca-Cola Zero just got tipped over, but it was empty and had a cap on it, so no need to worry people at home.
1: No muss, no fuss. <laughs> yes. yes. So, you know, we've all had that situation where we get called in last minute to kind of, um, to sub. Now this this uh, this is not the case I mean it, but it I kind of feel along the lines like that's what I was doing um you know my dad uh, a lot of people you know are aware of, he, you know he's a musician he's a composer he I don't think a lot of people knew that he wrote music as much as he did but he uh he would spend a lot of time uh pensive moments I guess you know uh, up in his uh, attic practice room and he would play uh, the Fender Rhodes keyboard, and, and I'd hear him singing different melodies. And, you know, I, I guess I, I knew that he was writing, but I didn't know that he was writing it all down. So, um, you know, uh, after he, he passed away, I mean, it was, a, it was a, you know, completely shattered our world, you know. I mean, it's just, you know, it, it completely uh, destructed everything you know, and it took a, it took a while to, to kind of put the pieces back together. And, and as we were going through his things, you know, my mom found these, uh, these folders of, of uh, he would go to the, the music store and he would buy like the, the spiral bound uh, notebooks, but you know, in it, it would be like, you know, manuscript paper, music paper. And he would sit upstairs and all of these tunes that he was writing and singing at the piano, he, he had been writing them all down. So there's like eighty of, eighty of these tunes, you know, these compositions with you know various feels. There's bossa novas and there's, you know, I I guess you know he really liked you know a variety of styles of music. There's, there's enough material there to do like eight different records. You know, one could be with like a, you know, like a Latin, you know, bossa nova cats. You know, another one could be. there's just a a, a real wide spectrum of of different styles and moods. So, um, you know, uh, I was in Spain in in 2009, in August of 2009 with Bill Goodwin. And I got a, I checked my email and my my wife, you know, sends me an email and says, hey, guess what your mom found? You know, this is, mind you, this is, you know, like over a year later, you know, so, you know what I mean? I was traveling, I was working, it, it wasn't like I was sitting Morning. I was I was on the road, and I you know a nine-day tour of Spain, and I get this exciting email from my wife saying you know your mom found these notebooks with music in them, and and you know you, you wouldn't believe how much music there is, Adam. There's all this stuff. So, you know I was pretty excited about it. I hadn't seen any of it yet, but I at dinner I told Bill Goodwin, uh, drummer, and you know he's like my second father figure, and right? I've known him now for over ten years, probably eleven years, and. You know, he's a mentor. Um, you know, as a saxophone player who really loves the drums. Uh, I mean, you know, he's he's a Bill is a drummer's drummer, man. You know, he's yeah, a heavy, yeah. every man's drummer. But he's just a great, inspiring guy. And you know, I really love the way he plays. And you know, he's he's a very laid back, uh, West Coast kind of kind of person. You know, I think he's he is from L.A. He's from Hollywood. You know, both of his parents were entertainers. And. Mm-hmm. Uh, You know, I always joke around, and I don't—I don't mean this in any way to be disparaging or or, uh, anything other than a compliment. This is a compliment, but I think of Bill. He's the oldest 16-year-old I know. You know, (laughs) meaning that like when you hang out with Bill, the vibe—you know—he's—he's very wise, and you know, he knows a lot of stuff. But he still likes to have fun, kind of the same as like a 16-year-old kid likes to have fun. And he has a a sense of humor, and you know, he'll play pranks on you and stuff. And you know,
0: he's a great guy. You know, that's cool. He's a balanced guy. He's not, you know, it's uh, childlike instead of childish.
1: No, yeah, exactly. He's not childish. He still has like the the youthful child qualities that are positive, while also being very mature. And you know, and you know, so yeah. Thank you for saving me from, you know, from trying to compliment. (laughs) I saw you were in trouble and felt I had to step in. Thanks, Daron. Thank you. So, um, you know. That kind of really I, ha- I have a pretty close relationship with Bill, so at dinner we were you know we were in this uh, place called Cangas. it's a it's a city right on the water it's it's like a beach you know like a paradise kind of beach uh community you know a place to live in Spain that's right on the water. We were eating this amazing meal we were having octopus that was uh caught that morning you know beautiful wine i mean it was a great meal and and i I mentioned to bill you know like a, as a uh, table conversation, you know, like, hey, guess what? I got an email from my wife, and my mom found all this music that my dad wrote, and, you know, obviously some of it's been recorded on his past records, but a lot of it hasn't, and it looks like there's about 80 plus you know, new compositions that nobody's heard, you know, and Bill immediately he's like, well, um, he's like, we gotta, we gotta write, we gotta document this music. Somebody has to, you know, I mean, if anybody's gonna do it, it should be you. You know, and, um, so that's what I'm talking about, kind of like, is feeling like a sub, you know. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, I, I know, and I'm very uh, familiar with my dad's music. I know his sound. His practice room was right above my my bedroom growing up, so I'd hear him. You know, he'd wake me up with the piccolo playing like reveille, you know, stuff like that to to wake me up because he knew that I would hear it. You know, I mean, I, I know his practice routine. I mean, I, you know, just as the the music going around in the house, you know, when you live with a musician, you hear not only how they sound on the bandstand at night, but you hear what goes into the preparation as well, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So I really feel that I, I do know my dad's playing. I heard it my entire life growing up in the house and, you know, for many years we played together, um, you know, which was, you know, some of my most cherished memories is playing with my father, man, getting to play jazz, you know, two, two saxophone front line with your dad, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's good fun. And, uh, you know, I miss him a lot, but, uh, I guess I knew what Bill meant, you know, when he's saying if anybody should play this music for Jerry, he'd want you to do it. So he said, all right, first record, he says, we gotta make, a, we gotta really do this. You know, he says, who would you want, who do you think your dad would want to play with, um, you know, if he, if he could play with anybody, you know? And I said, well, I said, man, I mean, just, because we would go to jam sessions and we'd talk and you know, we'd put on records, we'd talk about musicians and why we both love their playing. I know, you know, without a shadow, of a doubt, that dad really would have liked to play with uh, Elvin Jones. And he would have also really liked to play with Tony Williams. And we talked about the subtle differences of both their playing, you know, both Tony's and Elvin. And, you know, who's to say? I mean, you know, it's very... Very different styles and takes on kind of the same thing, which is they're both virtuoso jazz drummers, but so different, right? They're they're coming at the same concept from very different angles, right? So, you know, but unfortunately, you know, uh, neither my father or myself are, are going to have access to Tony Williams or to Elvin Jones. So I was thinking, in the lineage or in the playing, like who can I think of that really has has both of those things? Jack DeJohnette is the the next. At least for me, you know, we would always talk. My dad and I, you know, Dad thought, and I kind of tend to agree with him that, that what's awesome about Jack DeJanet is it's like a, it's like he's found this way to seamlessly combine both Elvin Jones and and uh, and Tony Williams into his own thing. You know what I mean? It really has elements of both. Um, I'm sure some people would disagree. You know, if, if I've offended someone, you know, you're entitled to your opinion. But, uh, you know, yeah, so that, it seems to me, you know, especially just recalling taking, like, road trips with Dad and listening to stuff, and Jack would do one of those, like, slippery and, you know, like, just uh, masterful drum fills, like, right in, like, the space where, like, the the, the soloist is taking a breath or, or, you know, leaving leaving a space, and then Jack just, you know, plays an amazing drum fill, and then, you know, watching my dad, you know, Freak out, you know, just completely lose it. Whoa, you know, cheering at the at the record on the stereo, you know. I knew Jack. I knew that Dad would have really liked to play with Jack, you know. So I said, "Well, Jack Jeanette. That was it, you know. I was like Jack Jeanette. and then I, you know, I, I thought, you know, who else would would be great to play with, you know? Uh, one of you know my favorite records. It was a Christmas gift from my dad. I had it on vinyl first. And then I, you know, I have it on CD. Is the, the Jack uh, playing with? I mentioned it earlier on in this interview. Uh, the, the record "Time on My Hands." It's on Blue Note. Uh, you know, John Scofield is the leader, but it has you know, uh, Lovano and Charlie Hayden and Jack. You know, and I love that recording. I've listened to that recording so many times. I love the way they sound together. And you know, Dad gave it to me as a gift because he obviously liked it and thought that was an amazing lineup. And you know, we listened to the recording together so I wanted I wanted Schofield and you know then trying to think about bass players you know um, I know that you know John Patitucci, uh had not played with my dad a lot but he really any of the times that I've run into John you know he was always so sincere and when I say sincere like as a musician sometimes you you know people say things to you because they think that it's it's something that they need to say you know I'm talking about like the superficial conversation you know and I've always gotten one hundred percent sincerity and no wasted speech from, from John Patatucci. And the, the, what he's communicated to me any time that I run into him at an IJE or backstage at a concert or, you know, at a jazz festival, what have you, was that he really genuinely liked my father's playing and he wished that he had gotten to play with him more. So the, the fact that on multiple occasions he had thought to very sincerely, and I got the fact that it, you know I got, I got the feeling that he was not just like you know saying something because he thought it was the nice thing to say, he really meant it. So that was it. It, it seemed like that was the perfect fit. It was you know a bass player that really wanted to play with my father and felt that he didn't get to play with him enough, um, and I knew you know from from just sharing and, and the love of recordings. Of, Schofield and and Dejeunet, that seemed like for the first recording, you know, uh, that would be the band. So, you know, at the dinner, you know, I said those names, and Bill was like, well, you're in luck, man, because I know all those guys. I've known Jack for years, We're the same age. Um, We've been friends for a really long time, and I'm kind of overdue to reach out and talk to him anyway. uh, Schofield was on my very first record as a leader, which I'm re-releasing, which actually, you know, that's kind of a neat thing. Bill... He, he remastered, digitally remastered from the source tapes and everything. Uh, his first record on Omnitone or whatever—it's uh, called Solar Energy. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting record, and you know it has Schofield on it. And you know I, I had been checking that out and listening to it anyway. You know, and so it—it it just all seemed to kind of you know like they talk about the six degrees of separation. You know, that it just seemed like these people, like everything was kind of interconnected the in, in, that way that seemed serendipitously right you know for this particular project and in trying to pick people that i knew that dad would have been excited and that he would have wanted to play with himself but i also share a mutual admiration for their playing and that we we both we both agreed you know that not every player that i like my dad and i would sit down and say yeah you know we we didn't always agree right mm-hmm. There were a lot of players that we both mutually agreed, like we love their playing, and I'm not going to name names because I don't want to, you know what I mean, it's dad is no longer here, but there were certain personalities that I find really great in this music that dad did not share my admiration of these people, so what I, I really wanted to do was try to pick people that I knew that we both loved their playing and that dad would have been really proud and excited to make a record with these people, but he would also be excited that I was recording and documenting these tunes for him with, with these guys. So, you know, I, I really credit it all to, uh, you know, you have these nice conversations over at dinner. I really didn't think that night in Spain, you know, before we went on to play the show, that this conversation about, oh, well, you should make a record, you know, and all, yeah, I, I can get in touch with these guys. I didn't think that that, that, that was like actually, you know. Setting it in stone, but it was, you know, Bill was totally sincere and serious about making it happen, and a hundred percent, man, Bill Goodwin just made the recording happen, you know.
0: Yeah, and what's the name of the the recording, the album? Well,
1: I mean, quite honestly, it's uh, the only part of of the procedure that's that's been done was picking out the music,
0: uh-huh. and,
1: and then the actual tracking. So the, the the record is recorded. It was done this past August fifteenth and 16th. Okay. In, in Woodstock, New York, you know, uh, Jack DeJohnette had a studio in mind that he likes that's close to his house, and he's he's actually done his last, uh, you know, his his own you know personal records as a leader. He's done them there with one with uh, Patatucci and Demilo, and uh, there's, there's some other. He's done a lot of work at this particular studio, uh-huh. and it was close to his house. So you know, he hooked. He, he told Bill, you know, the the, the contact, and you know, it kind of all just. Very easily. I was surprised, actually, how easy. I was thinking that it was going to be like a thing where we would have to wait like a year and a half to get all their schedules to to mesh. Because you know, Sko is really busy, Patatucci is really busy, and Jack is really busy. You know, and it just it just kind of it, it wasn't that hard. You know what I mean? We just sent out a couple emails and got schedules, and it all just seemed to line up perfectly for this past August. So we did two days. Uh, of tracking, and uh, it was all great. Uh, I wrote uh, one song. I, I wrote two songs that I had hoped to record, and you know, with time and everything, and um, you know, we didn't get to get to one of them, but we, we recorded one piece that I wrote specifically for those three musicians to be played, kind of as a—I don't know—it was part of a healing process for me, I guess. You know what I mean? It's uh, the piece is called "Final Departure." It's, uh, I guess, in my mind, you know I was the one who had to go to the the airport and get dad 's car out of the long term parking without the ticket and try to like you know explain to these people listen the, the ticket burned up in an airplane crash so i don 't have the ticket to get the car out and this is what happened you know what I mean I had to I had to go through two parking lots at, at uh, Newark airport searching through over four, thousand cars looking for his car It took hours you know and you know in that, in that, uh, experience, you know, I mean, I guess it just kind of, you know, I was retracing all of dad's steps on his last, uh, trip to the airport, you know, so I guess, you know, it just, uh, uh, I wrote the, in my mind, what I felt was the soundtrack to someone's last final departure, you know, so we did that. And then, uh, there was a, a bunch of other songs that I had picked out that I thought, you know. As I said, when I was looking through some of the music, there were a lot of great tunes in there. But, you know, I I, I try to think of what uh, musicians are are best at. You know, so that the ones that I, you know, obviously, you know, uh, these cats can play anything. But it's like I'm not going to call uh, Dijonette and, and Schofield and Patatucci and say, okay, we're going to do all bossa novas. Now, can yeah, you do that? Yeah. Can you do that traditional? Uh, you know. Can you do that traditional just nova feel please? you know I mean it's like Jack is gonna do what he does naturally, so I tried to pick songs that I felt were coming out of the bop or uh post bop tradition, and you know I tried to imagine what it would be like with these guys playing them and i, I you know I, I picked out a, a good number of I have to look there's there's maybe like twelve or thirteen songs that we, that we recorded of dads and you know it was really wild to hear their interpretations and also to hear what what the musicians, each one of them brought nice things to the table. You know, Jack, he he would actually, like, if he was hearing the melody of a song slightly slower or slightly faster than what I was counting it off, he would speak up. Yeah, and he would say, awesome. you know, man, I really think that that melody would sound good if, if we played it just a hair slower. Do you see how more relaxed it is? You know? And, you know, you... I mean, that's the kind of input at least me, I want to hear what these guys have to say because I respect everything that they've done musically. And I'm such a fan of their playing that I, I would want Jack to, if, you know, rather than suffer through multiple takes of a tune at a faster tempo than where he's hearing it, if he's really hearing it at a more relaxed tempo, let's do it at the tempo you're feeling it at, man. And it'll mm-hmm. probably, it's most likely going to be better, you know? And it was. So, and then, you know, Schofield, he... He had, you know, various things that he would like to do as far as not not reharmonizing. I mean, we were really respectful to to play the songs the way the dad wrote them. You know, play the chord changes and the 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 roots in the bass and the melody. You know, everything was re- we respected the composer. But as far as just like the vibe and things, each you know, Patatucci, man, he really did his homework. Man, he was writing me emails about like, hey, you know, I was thinking that this tune would sound good on you know in this register if I played this here, and what do you think? and he was really when he showed up to the recording session. He had all all the parts were, were marked in pencil, and he, you know, he had he had like a little bass line that he he actually kind of I guess I mean I, I got to credit him for composing it on one of the songs, Vertigo, you know, where he's he's outlining the the changes, but he's doing it with wider intervals, and you know I got to give credit to him for that. I mean, it's I felt that each one I tried to give them the freedom to feel that if they really wanted to do something in their gut, to, to do it and. Um, mm-hmm. It just made for, I mean, it was fun. I felt like it was a kind of a, even though it was a, it could have been a very somber experience. You know, we're recording music of, of a musician who, you know, sadly was, was killed in a tragic accident, you know? And he didn't get to to document this music himself. So that could be a very somber, sad experience, but the way that we, we did it, it was a combination of like respectful and also it was fun. You know, like, I, I, you know what I mean? It's it's a hard thing, you know. You're making a record for your dad who was who was killed in a in a plane crash. You know, in mm-hmm. memoriam, as as, a, as an homage, you know, to to him. You know, but so it's kind of hard to to say, oh yeah, it was really fun. You know, it was a fun experience, but it was. You know, I mean, I guess if you can imagine, like they they, you know, they, we found a way to make it fun and enjoyable and a celebration of his life and his sound and his compositions and. You know, I mean, it was amazing, man. He he spent a lot of time each year. I'm talking Jerry, you know, Jerry and I He spent mm-hmm. so much time away from home, and all of his songs are about. Uh, it's like love songs for my mom. You know, he oh. wrote a he, he wrote a ballad. You know, uh, one of the songs is called "I Know Sadness Now," which, you know, obviously, I mean, it, it resonates with me having to play a song with that title. I do know sadness now, but the, when he wrote it. He wrote it for my grandma, not his mother, but my mother's mother, his mother-in-law. Mm-hmm. When when his mother-in-law passed away, he wrote this. I mean, it's a gut-wrenching, sad ballad that's beautiful, but also bittersweet. And it's called "I Know Sadness Now," and it was for his mother-in-law, which I think kind of defies the stereotype. You know, I mean, we all watch like you know a television, you know, modern day, you know, uh, Al Bundy, uh, you know, on, you know what I mean? <laughs> <You> <laughs>
0: modern know, people, family. Well, you know what I'm talking about.
1: I mean, you know, it's like at least comedy. With comedy these days, it seems like the the modern stereotypical thing is like this thing of like, you know, they they, we all we all you know joke around about the relationship with you know the mother-in-law. You know, oh yeah, the in-laws go to the in-laws for the holidays. (laughs) You know, but dad dad really felt like I remember him saying when when my uh, you know when my grandma died that he felt like I feel like I'm really an orphan now. You know, and he was talking about losing his mother-in-law. You know, so I don't know. It's
0: It's very kind kind spirit. Sounds like a very,
1: very kind spirit. Well, yeah, just a thinker. He would really think and internalize. You know, you you had to watch out what you said to Jerry because it's like he wouldn't say anything to you if you said something. You know, maybe not the the most uh, well-constructed statement or something. I mean, he would think about it from so many different angles. He could, you know, you you could have offended him deeply, and he would never tell you like, hey, you know that's messed up but I felt like he really was just like a he would think and ponder everything from so many different angles he was a philosopher you know yeah I learned a lot, you know from my conversations with him about life and about how to how to look at you know a, a situation from multiple angles you know yeah. so you know yeah and I just you know it made me more more appreciative of, of the fact that he was really a, a great father and and he really worked hard to provide a uh, a safe environment for his family and you know, even putting himself in danger obviously in mean, the way that he you know, he was going to work when he when he died, you know. But um, all of the songs that he wrote were about home and about coming home and about, you know, family members and loving family and, you know, it just uh it's funny you can take things for granted you know, when they're when they're happening, you know what I mean? And now that I look back on it I really realize that uh you know, he was like the strongest provider, you know, and, and really kind of set the bar pretty high for me now. I have two kids. I have, you know, a son and a daughter. Uh, my daughter's six. My son is four. And, you know, now as far as like the way that I was brought up and, you know, the strong father figure and, and provider that I had, I mean, he really set the bar high now. And that's why I guess, you know, when you're asking earlier about how I make my money, you know, I'm, I'm not just going to sit around waiting for the phone to ring. I want to play. And I have high standards as far as the music that I want to play, but mm-hmm. I'm going to do whatever I can to to make sure that, that I'm being productive and that there's food, you know, food on the table and money coming in and, you
0: know. yeah. yeah well we're we're running out of time, but what I wanted to see if you could leave people with is just basically you know briefly, just any advice you have for aspiring. Uh, sax players who want to go pro um, what do you think they need to have under their belt to succeed
1: hmm. well um, I think honestly the, the people who are succeeding today and this is different because you know what what people would tell you remember we, we both went to Patterson you know the, the things that they would tell us were were important to have together you know 15 years ago the, the, the scene is changing a lot now so I think really what you have to do if you want to play music you have to think creatively about how you're going to to make a living you know mm-hmm. and and that you know there there are certain musicians who who are very fortunate and you know they, they get to go out on the road and you know i mean i'm hoping man i mean if, if herbie hancock or pat metheny or john scofield call me and they want me to go on the road with them you know i'll drop whatever i have going on and and, and go out and, you know pack a bag and go to the airport so i'm not saying you know but for for those who who don't have the phone ringing and are not constantly on the road, you have to be creative. You know, uh, even guys who are super busy, David Liebman, Jared Braganzi. These guys are very busy, but they have books. They write books, for example. You know, think about how many uh, books are out on how to play and how to improvise that, that Braganzi has published, and the same thing with David Liebman. You know, these guys are are thinking creatively in an entrepreneurial way of how to supply uh stuff that is very much them you know what i mean mm-hmm. and i think that's that's what what ends up you know a, a friend of mine from manhattan school you know i i wouldn't have thought that this would be the path but he, he has a, a record that's up for a grammy nomination it's a kids record
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know what i mean so this is a guy who thought creatively he likes kids and and uh you know his name is oran <laughs> you know,
0: which is almost very close to you very close to me, yeah. Nice name. The guy
1: so, who, uh, who think creatively and, and, are, and are having, uh, as my dad said, you know, you have to have a lot of pots on the stove.
0: Yeah.
1: So if you have a, a lot of different things going on at the same time, then, you know, when you have the downtime, when you have that three weeks of downtime, you know, between your next gig, you know, if you are teaching lessons or or uh, or, you know, publishing, you know, like a practice, you know, manual or something you know just think of a way to supply people with with what they need with something not not like you're selling uh you know like the thigh master you know what i mean or <laughs> coming up with some like new yeah, fang- thing
0: wrong with the thigh master i've lost <laughs> 12 pounds with that
1: thing oh that's amazing but you know what i'm saying like not coming up with like you know uh, newfangled like you know ways engineered to like make money but come up with something that that people actually want and need mm-hmm. When you provide it for them they 're going to want to get it from you, I guess, and that's you know for me, I happen to be good with tools that was something my mother's father, my grandfather on my mom's side, was a carpenter, and you know from the time I was very young, he was teaching me how to use the right tool for the job and, and not to misuse tools and it's something that I carried with me, i guess not realizing it, but you know i've always really liked to fix stuff, you know yeah. so he had, being able to in my off time as a saxophonist and a drummer, um, being able to fix stuff as a craftsman enabled me to live very comfortably and i 'm thankful for that you know but not everybody is good with tools, so people have to think up their own i don 't want to say angle but their own thing that they 're actually good at that they can supply a service and you know when you can supply something that people need and they seek you out like i said i don 't advertise for the mouthpiece thing you know I just have a website and you know, if a customer really likes the job that I did for them, they tell their friends, and then it leads to more clients, and that's really just kind of grassroots with that. You know, so.
0: Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, I, I, we're pretty much at the end now. Um, obviously, I could chat with you all day. I think I only got through about half of the things um, I wrote down that I thought would be cool to talk about. But it's been an incredibly uh, valuable chat that I had with you, and uh, your website. It's a uh, Nyewood.com? Yeah, N-I-E-W-O-O-D.com. Okay, and I'll put that up on the website too, on the show notes. So, um, the last thing I'm going to do is, uh, well, we're going to close the show out with uh, a tune uh, by Adam called Electoral College. And uh, that's it. Again, thanks so much, Adam, and I uh, hope to talk to you soon. Likewise. Thank you so much for the, uh, the time. Okay, thank you, my friend. Thank you.